Hello, Ecclesia. My name is Katherine Palmer, and here are some new ways to connect this week, as well as a reminder about what's ongoing at Ecclesia. Kids Camp will be held virtually from June 29th through July 30th. We will have a pre-recorded morning session with worship, story, and more for your kids to enjoy streamed online. We will then break for a few hours and have a fun, interactive afternoon session to be held on Zoom. Our theme this year is Together. We are looking forward to sharing this time with your children and showing them that they are not alone. Registration is open. Just a reminder, we are continuing to gather weekly online only. Through the end of summer, we do not foresee gathering in person for indoor weekly services. However, we will invite you to opportunities to gather outdoors as we are able. Stream services on Facebook and at ecclesiahouston.org online every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. We also have previous week's videos to view at your convenience at ecclesiahouston.org online. Save the date for our next outdoor even song, June 20th, celebrating Father's Day. Keep an eye out for more information about how to register in the coming weeks. We invite you into a time of guided spiritual contemplation via Zoom on Tuesday evening at 9 p.m. All are welcome. As we navigate the toll of this challenging season, we invite you to join in gathering from our homes in a rhythm of midweek renewal. We will engage with scripture, worship, and pray together in this simple space of community and reflection. We are hosting midweek one-on-one pastoral care meetings, weekly community meetups, discipleship groups, and podcasts. We are accepting no contact donations as we continue to care for our brothers and sisters, especially in these difficult circumstances. This week, Los Palos Empanadas has partnered with Ecclesia. 10% of proceeds from these orders go directly to helping provide meals for brothers and sisters in Argentina. Order by Thursday evening for drive through pickup on Friday. Ecclesia, we ask you to continue to pray for those in our city, country, and world as we face this pandemic. We invite you and urge you to take care of yourselves and stay connected with family and friends. We are all in this together and we will make it through. Lost 
friends, and welcome back to Quarantine Made Sacred. Right now, um, we are, for the most part, most of us, still in a stay-at-home, safer-at-home, quarantine kind of situation. And life is just not normal, and I don't know that it'll ever be normal, at least the normal that we thought we used to have. And if you're anything like me, then right now you have felt all the feelings about that. You want to get back. You want to stay safe. You want to do everything. You've been overjoyed. You have been underwhelmed. You have been frustrated. You have been happy. There are times where I think, this is great. And I'll look back on this time with fondness. Rochelle and I were just talking about the loss of our children as our oldest daughter is now a junior in high school, or she will be in the fall, and how we had been praying. We'd just been really hopeful for a while that we would have even more time with her. And this quarantine gave us that. But then there are other days where we feel like, I am going to lose my mind if this goes on for another hour. There are people, you, that I want to see, I want to hug, I want to hear about your life face-to-face and not just on a Zoom call. But the beautiful thing, and you've heard this from me and you've heard it from so many other people, is that God isn't quarantined and the church isn't quarantined. And historically, God has done his best work in the hearts of his people in seasons just like this. When Christians weren't free to meet in large gatherings and giant buildings, But when we were forced to meet in catacombs and house gatherings or stuck at home all alone, and that's why for the last couple of weeks, I've been wanting to point us to the Apostle Paul, one of the most influential Christians in history, wrote some of his best, most memorable letters while he was quarantined at home alone for two years. He was arrested. He wrote Colossians and Ephesians and Philippians and Philemon, Philemon. 
And 20 times while he is quarantined at home alone, 20 times, he uses the language of family to talk about the church. He sends greetings from brothers and sisters from one city to the next city. He uses the language of family to describe God's church. And Paul actually means it. And not just Paul. This is mind-blowing to me. On the cross, Jesus is dying primarily of suffocation. So every word is precious. And that's why Jesus only speaks a couple of times on the cross, a few times, seven statements that have become famous. But one of those times is to his mother, Mary. Jesus raises up enough energy and pushes through his own strength to address her and says to her and to his friend, John, she says, Mom, he's now your son. And John, she's now your mother. You will, you will misunderstand Jesus and what God is up to in the world if you don't understand that Jesus is creating a new family, one that has no longer defined by blood or race or age, but by Jesus's blood alone. In the tradition that I grew up in, we called each other brother and sister. And, and we had this saying that water is thicker than blood. And what we meant by that is those in the community of the baptized, that those were our mother, father, brother, sister. And that's what Jesus is doing. It's a family that transcends ethnicities that you're born into through Jesus. And that's what, a, that's what Paul is planning around the world. It's a family of grace where the younger prodigal brother welcomes home, is welcomed home. And the older rule-keeping brother who likes to keep track of who owes who for what is welcomed too, but only after he drops the scorecard. That's the kind of family Jesus had in mind. If you know the life of Paul, you can see why family language is such a big deal. Paul knows the story of the prodigal son because he was the older brother. You know, Jesus doesn't tell us how the story of the prodigal ends, but we actually do know how that story ends. The older brother raises up and kills the father. Because Jesus is telling this story to Pharisees, the religious leaders of his day, and they wind up killing him. And Paul was one of those Pharisees. In fact, when Paul steps onto the pages of history, he's not trying to spread God's new family. He's trying to kill it. And when Jesus appears and introduces himself to Paul, lets him know that he is still very much alive and that he's persecuting God's family, that when he's persecuting Christians, he's persecuting God. And then Jesus turns the lights out on Paul. For three days, Paul's blind. He can't see anything. And then Jesus goes to another follower named Ananias and tells him to go visit Paul and to pray for him. Ananias knows that Paul's basically a terrorist who wants to kill him, but he goes anyway. And the first words that we have recorded that a Christian speaks directly to Paul in the New Testament becomes the anthem for Paul's life and ministry and still sends echoes today. Here's what Ananias' first words are to the man who had been trying to kill him 
only a few verses later in Acts 9, Acts 9, 17 says this. So Ananias went and entered the house where Saul was staying. He laid his hands on Saul and called him. Ananias says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on your way here sent me so you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Brother Saul, welcome to the family. This is why Paul uses so much family language in his letters because he knows what a special kind of family this is. He knows it's a family of grace, a family that transcends all the ways we divide the world. Paul is writing not to organize religion, not to build big buildings, but a new kind of family that the world has never seen anything like it before. They were meeting in homes, often in secret and often in danger. But they were the beloved family of God. And he wants them to know that's the most important thing about them. So they have to treat each other like God loves them enough to die for them. They have to treat every mom like she's Jesus's mom and every son like a brother. Now, that sounds all great and everything, but if, if you're like me, sometimes the people that we treat or are supposed to treat like brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers, well, we treat them kind of like a redheaded stepchild, as the old saying goes. I don't know what being redheaded ever had to do with it or being a stepchild, but you know what I mean? And it's more than about language. It's about a certain kind of spirit, a Holy Spirit that we have not just inside of us and not just descends down to us, but a Holy Spirit that we have toward one another. I don't think the problem most American Christians have is failing to recognize that the church is family. I think the problem most of us have these days is that we have the wrong idea about family. And Paul knows this is a possibility too. So there's a couple of times in his letters that Paul actually writes how we ought to treat one another in our actual homes and actual families. And I think it's something that we all need to hear today. And, and ironically, Paul lays out rules about how families living together should treat each other in his letters while he was home alone without anyone. And I think it's fascinating that Paul talks more about how households ought to act when he can't be around a house full of people, can't be around anyone. Because I've been around a house full of the same people nonstop for the past 70 days, and I've never found Paul's words more difficult to apply in my life. I feel like every morning I wake up and it's a scene from Groundhog Day. So Paul's words to dads and moms and kids can seem tone deaf. Like, hey, that's easy for you to say, Paul, you're a single guy stuck in a house all alone. Why don't you try coming and living my life for a week and then we'll see what you think. It can seem that way until you realize what we do at home has huge implications, not just for our individual families, but for what God is up to in the world. Because you can't call the church the family of God if you have the wrong definition of what a family is. If I call you brother, then I had better treat my biological brother 
with grace and kindness. If I call you a spiritual mom, then it means nothing if I don't honor and care for my biological mom. And so the litmus test of what it means for a church to be a family is that families that make up the church take Jesus seriously at home. This is what Paul says in Colossians 3. He says, wives, be submitted to your husbands as is appropriate in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and don't treat them harshly or respond with bitterness toward them. Children, obey your parents in every way. The Lord is well pleased by it. Fathers, don't infuriate your children so their hearts won't harbor resentment and become discouraged. All right, so some of you are thinking right now, here goes Paul again. Here goes some ancient way of seeing the world, just some crusty old chauvinist trying to make sure that keeping he's keeping all the women and the children in place. And you're saying, you're saying, Paul, you don't know that women women vote now. They're, they're striving for equality. Don't you know that the word submit, Paul, carries a lot of baggage for people? And some of us may be embarrassed by this passage of the Bible. And some of us are thinking, you know, that's what's wrong with Christians. They believe in such repressive ideas that are just stuck in the first century. But does it make a difference if you find out that in Paul's world, the Roman household, in that household, the father had absolute right to kill anyone he wanted in his home, and there would be no legal repercussions at all. There is not a single example that I know of, of any first century writer in the Roman world telling men to care for their wives and treat them like a full human being made in the image of God. Paul makes sure that husbands think about their wives' needs and desires. Nobody else was doing that. Paul wants husbands to realize their wives aren't property they own, but daughters of the same God who created them. And the same is for children. Children in the ancient world weren't thought of like we think of children today. In that world, children literally means in Latin, not speaking. When Paul tells dads not to exasperate their kids, that was off the Roman radars. Who cares about how my kids feel about things? The church historian Michael Parsons says that when Paul does this, he's taking a form of Roman household codes and making them Christian. He's spinning them. He's tipping them on their ear. And there are no other household codes like this in the Roman world because Paul is humanizing relationships that had become battlefields of contempt and antagonism. Paul is doing all of this by introducing into the new creation relationships that which had been lost, human dignity, specifically among women, children, and slaves. Household codes weren't new to Paul, but he makes them radically different because of Jesus. Each of you must love your wife as Jesus loves the church, and in fact, the same way you love yourself. That was radical. Husbands, here's what I know. What Paul knows about all of you, what Paul knows about every human, is that we love ourselves. Nobody has to tell us to try or to get ourselves what we want. 
Nobody has to remind us to make sure to make time to watch the new Michael Jordan documentary or to not forget hunting trips or hanging out with our friends. Nobody has to try and tell us to make our goals and dreams a priority. But Paul is trying to expand our circle of concern from what we want to what our family wants and needs. It's easy for me to make my job important. It's harder for me to remember that Rochelle has a calling too. But Paul would say, that's how you treat family. And everyone in the community of the baptized is family. Here's what I want you to know. Families are laboratories of love. Because when we honestly share life with each other, they make you have to become loving. Families are laboratories of forgiveness. Because we give each other lots to forgive one another of. Families are laboratories of patience. Because we give each other a lot of reason to be patient. It's easy to impress people at work or on Facebook or Instagram because they don't know the real you. They don't know the you with morning breath or a short temper or that you make promises that you don't follow through on. Without a family, we can easily fool ourselves into believing we're way better than we actually are. Paul is directly addressing family life in his letters, not because he thinks it's easy, but because he knows it's hard. He wants us to know what's at stake. It's the mystery of the gospel. In Romans 8, when Paul is writing about the difficult times that we all face, he calls them short and momentary afflictions. And he points us to Jesus, who he then calls the firstborn of a very large family. And what I want you to see, Ecclesia, is when the scriptures call us family, they actually mean it. And when the scriptures call us to family, they actually mean it. This is the great mystery and wonder of Paul's world and something we need to keep in mind during times of stress like this. Family is the laboratory where we learn to love. And if we can't do it there, we can't do it. Not only that, but the church, those people we worship with, they are your family too. God bless.
It's a love. 